church if they'd like. And I'd invite the rest of you who are staying to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. It's on page 635 in the Pew Bible. Proverbs chapter 11, page 635. So we continue our study in Proverbs. When I think of literary characters who were miserly, <clears throat> at the top of the list has to be Ebenezer Scrooge. And he is the, the tightwad of all tightwads. But uh, there's another literary character I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Silas Marner. Uh, it's actually a book by George Eliot. And the main character in the title of the book is Silas Marner. And um, it's a story set in 19th century England Silas is a weaver. He lives in the city. And Silas uh, uh, goes to this church where he, I guess we'd say today, had a bad church experience. That's what we call it today. He, um, he's accused of stealing money from the church, which he didn't steal. And his best friend turns against him in the accusation and uses it as an opportunity to horn in on his girlfriend. And he ends up stealing his girlfriend and marrying her. So, like, everything falls apart for Silas. His good name is lost, his church, his friend, his girlfriend. And so he completely breaks down, flees the city, flees the church, and goes out to live in the country. And he settles in this little town in the country called Revelo, which is kind of out in the sticks somewhere. He becomes like a hermit. He lives on the edge of town. He never participates in what's going on inside the village. For 15 years, he just weaves cloth and makes money. And all the people think he's weird. Everyone thinks he's kind of this odd person. All the kids think he's like the boogeyman, you know. They, they sneak up to his house and look in the windows and he looks at them and they all run away. You know, it's that kind of thing. So for 15 years, he isolates himself from human contact for the most part, makes a load of money through weaving because he doesn't spend it on anything, and he just piles up this huge load of cash and puts it under his floorboards at night. And, it, and, I, and then he takes it out and looks at it. In fact, there's this great uh, description of his, his love of his money. Uh, let me just read it to you. So all day long he weaves and works. But it says, at night came his revelry. At night he closed his shutters and made fast his doors and drew out his gold. Long ago the heap of coins had become too large for the iron pot to hold them. And he made for them two thick leather bags which wasted no room in their resting place, but lent themselves flexibly to every corner. How the guineas shone as they came pouring out of the dark leather mouths. He spread them out in heaps and bathed his hands in them. Then he counted them and set them up in regular piles and felt their rounded outline between his thumb and fingers. You know, what a great description of the kind of miserly love of money the, the love of possessing, not even uh, to, to buy something, but just to have in order to have that obsession that we can have in sort of an idolatrous kind of way. But we know that that kind of miserly, stingy, money-loving spirit is completely contrary to the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That the God we worship is a gracious God. He is a generous God. He is a God who gives and gives, and we can't believe how much He gives. He just keeps on giving. And so we've been studying money the last couple Sundays here in Proverbs. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Chris uh, preached a dynamite sermon on work 
how we need to work hard. And then we looked the last two Sundays at the love of money versus treasuring Christ. And we were wrestling with, you know, should, do we love money? Have we fallen into the main religion in America, which is to worship our wealth? Or, or have we learned to treasure Christ instead? Well, today I want to look at perhaps a, um, the best litmus test for knowing whether or not we love money, which is generosity. If we're generous people, then we know that we've come to trust Jesus and treasure Him and not wealth. But if we're miserly people, it's probably because we're in love with money. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 11, which is a text all about generosity versus <clears throat> hoarding of wealth. Proverbs chapter 11. And look at verse 24. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. People curse the man who hoards grain, but blessings crown him who is willing to sell. So notice the descriptions and the contrast here. Verse 24, you have a man who gives freely. You need something, ask him. He's happy if he can help. Another withholds unduly. So even the things that this guy really does have an obligation to give, he won't give. He finds some lame excuse to weasel out of having to give it to you. And so he can't even meet his financial obligations that he really should. He doesn't even gives undo, he withholds unduly. Verse 25, a generous man will prosper. I like this. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. I thought, what a great description of generosity, what it does to the heart. It's refreshing. That when you, when you don't have what you need and you're in a spot and you're like, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay this bill? And someone comes along and shows generosity to you. It's like cool water. You're like, oh, that the burden lifts, the fear lifts, the sleepless nights lift, and you feel refreshed. Or look at verse 26. People curse the man who hoards grain, but blessings crown him who is willing to sell. Now remember, the Israelites did not live in a global economy like we do. You know, we get our clothes from Asia and we get our bananas from Argentina, or wherever. I don't know if they grow bananas in Argentina, somewhere else. We, we get our food from all over the place. It, it's a very interconnected society. The Israelites in these days lived in a very localized economy, not a global one. So there might be a village, say this church represents the village, and you have a farm and you had a really good year. Well, if you decide to withhold your grain from the market, that will have a serious impact on the other people in the village. So participation in the life of the community financially was part of being a generous person who cared for others. You couldn't just live your own little life with your own little paycheck somewhere because it was a very uh, small community. Or look at Proverbs chapter 3. Put a bookmark here in Proverbs 11. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, Come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you have it with you now. So be generous. Give to those who are in need. When we pull the camera lens back from Proverbs and we start looking at the broader Old Testament, what we see is that giving and generosity are kind of woven into the fabric of the Old Testament. It starts with God Himself. He's a generous God. He's the God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. He was gracious to these people in slavery. They cried out to Him like a needy people, Help! Help! And He came and He rescued them. So He brought them out. He 
fed them when they were in the wilderness. He brought them to the promised land. He's a good and gracious God. And so when God gives the law to Moses to give to the Israelites, what you see is that um, generosity and charity are kind of like hardwired into the law of Israel. They're just everywhere. You know, for example, the Israelites were commanded that when they're uh, gathering their harvest at harvest time, don't harvest the corners of the field. Leave the corners so that the poor can come and glean what you left behind. And when you go through your fields to harvest grain or you go through your vineyards to harvest your grapes, just go through once. Don't go through twice. Don't go back and get the stuff you left. Leave that for the poor. That's in the law of God. Or when you lend to a fellow Israelite, don't charge interest. Don't take advantage of people. So all throughout the law of God to the Israelites was this generosity built and like baked into the recipe. And same thing in the New Testament. When we move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant in Christ, we see that the same generosity marks the people of God. Uh, we've been studying the book of Acts, been reading it for the past couple months in our morning services. You remember back in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, when it was describing what it was like to be in the early church in Jerusalem? And one of the things they did was they cared for each other financially. If there was somebody in need, someone who had resources, would be moved by the Holy Spirit and he would sell it and he would give it to the person in need so the community took care of itself. Now, this was not socialism. This was not communism. This was Holy Spirit-inspired compassion and generosity within the body of Christ. This was something altogether unregulated by humans. This was God causing His people to care for each other. We see in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands so that he will have something to share with those in need. Which is kind of interesting. Have you ever thought about one of the main purposes of work is so that you can earn resources in order to help those in need? That's one of the reasons we should go to work and put up with you know, what we have to put up with and earn the money we need. It's not just to pay our own bills, but it's so that we'll be loaded, we'll have ammo, so to speak. So when someone's in need, we'll be like, yeah, I can help you because I've worked and God has given me these resources. But perhaps the greatest New Testament picture of giving, the greatest New Testament picture of generosity that kind of defines generosity as generosity, I think has to be the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, is this not the classic text for gracious generosity? Look with me. Put a bookmark here in Proverbs. We're going to come back to Proverbs because we have not uh, completely exhausted Proverbs 11. But go to Luke chapter 10. So bookmark Proverbs. Go to Luke chapter 10 in the New Testament. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's on page 1028 if you're using a pew Bible. Luke chapter 10. Page 1028 in the Pew Bible. And we're looking at verse 25. The famous parable of the Good Samaritan, which I would put forward to you as a beautiful picture of what it means to be a generous person. It says in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law... So when you read expert in the law, you've got to think like seminary professor. Okay? Expert Bible teacher. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He's testing him. This is a loaded question. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. 
I love that. You know, this guy's trying to test Jesus and Jesus totally parries him. And, you know, the guy's like, what? <laughs> what just happened? So, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. He didn't want to look like a dummy. He wanted to, you know, sound really erudite and, and philosophical. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I mean, let's define neighbor. I mean, what, exactly what is the essence of a neighbor? What is the ontological meaning of neighbor? So I, I can almost just hear Jesus kind of sighing like, okay, I'm going to tell you a little kid's story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So here's a guy in need. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here you have two people whom would be uh, held up as faithful Israelites, faithful people to God's law. But they see the man in need, beat up on the road, The moment comes, they recognize the need, and instead they intentionally pass to the other side of the road, hugging the other shoulder, pretending to look away. Who knows what their motivation was? Maybe uh, they were in a rush. They're very busy people. I mean, why stop and help one person when they could get to the temple and help thousands of people? Or maybe they were afraid they would get jumped too and that the bandits had left the man there as bait. I mean, who knows what? But for whatever reason, they're going to keep going. But then, verse 33, a Samaritan. And of course, you're probably familiar that there was a great animosity between Samaritans and Jews. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans as kind of half-breed Jew-Gentile mongrels with a sort of goofy, whacked-out perversion of Judaism. So they didn't like the Samaritans. So when Jesus mentioned Samaritan, you can almost hear the, see the audience kind of shifting uncomfortably like, mm, awkward, uncomfortable. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him... He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the... One who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go. Do likewise. What a beautiful picture of charity and generosity. It's very simple, really. I think we and I can make it overly complex. It's really simple. See a need. Care. And then with whatever resources you have, meet the need. This is what generosity is. It's pretty simple. You see it. Care enough, and then whatever it is God's put in front of you and whatever God's given you, use your resources to help in whatever way you can. I don't think it means we have to save the whole world. I think sometimes we can be so overwhelmed by the need in the world that we just sort of shut down and kind of go into fibrillation. Like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just, ah, it's too much. I'm overwhelmed by suffering. Just, what has God given, put in front of you right now? Who has God given you right now? He's put something in your path. And see the need care and take action. That's generosity. It's seeing someone who cannot help themselves and being moved. And so we have to ask ourselves as Christians, do we model the kind of generosity that God commands, that God Himself has shown to us? Are we generous Christians? Uh, You know, we've been talking about the love of money versus loving Christ. And I think sometimes it's easy to kind of spiritualize that. 
But at some point, it, the rubber's got to hit the road. And at some point, if we really love God more than money, it's got to show itself in tangible ways. Otherwise, it's just all talk. You know, are we charitable? Like, here's something you can do. Go look at your 2007 tax return. Find Schedule A, Charitable Donations. Now, look at that as a percentage of 1040 form on the front page, Adjusted Gross, adjusted gross Income. Right? What's the percentage? Am I charitable based on what God has given me? I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be legalistic about this, but really, at some point, it's got to come out in some kind of tangible way. When is the last time that, that you or I saw a need, a physical need, and were moved and extended help to meet that financial need, whatever it is? Have we ever done that? Uh, have we been Christians for years and haven't really done anything like that? I mean, really, are we charitable in ta- tangible ways? Uh, some of us have things we can give. We can give computers. We have an extra couch, an extra car. I had a lady uh, in the church come to me several years ago, and she said, uh, I have a car. And we were thinking about selling it, but, you know, I, I wonder if anyone in the church needs it, you know? My first response is like, I don't know, what kind of car is it? <laughs> you know, Because I kind of need a Lexus. But I mean, but, um, no, but, but I, so I said, I, okay, okay, I'll remember that. And the next week, you know, wouldn't you know, I'm talking to another lady in the church. She was struggling financially, single mom. And she says, oh, my car just died to top it all off. And I don't think, and this thing is dead. It just needs to be killed. I don't have the money to fix it. And so I was like, yeah, I got a car for you. <laughs> you know, she's like, what? You know, I'm like, I got a boat. I got a car. What do you need? What do you need? You know, I'm like, <laughs> Pastor eBay. So I was, um, so I, I, just, I, I just said, yeah, yeah, I have a car. There's a person in the church who told me they have a car. And if you want this car, you can have this car. She's like, I can have the car? I'm like, yeah. I said, like, you got a car. You know, there's people right now in our church who need a car. I know some by name. If you have a car, come talk to me. I know people in the church who need a car. I really could use one. Like, uh, you know, we could meet each other's needs in the body of Christ in tangible ways. We can take all this theory and put it in practice in our lives. But I think it's more than just money. And, and that was one of my concerns as I thought about generosity, is that I really see generosity and charity as kind of a modality, as a way of approaching life, rather than being withdrawn in Silas Marner style, away from people that we engage life, we engage each other as a community in the local church, and even outside of it, and, and that we, we open our lives in a multifaceted number of ways, not just writing checks or giving money, although that's important too, and a car is good. But you know, what about hospitality? I think hospitality is a kind of generosity, to open your home to another person. And let's be honest, some of us here would much rather write a check for someone to stay in a hotel than be hospitable. <laughs> you know? Uh, we, we just had uh, some house guests at our house last week. They were there for about four days. And we had a great time. We love these people. And it's one of my wife's best friends. And they brought four kids. So our four kids all, and their four kids and our four kids were all together. Uh, you know, for, they, they went one day and played tennis and I was in charge of eight kids. You know, so <laughs> that's right. Um, I don't think I lost any. But, uh, you know, we, um, and it was, it was really fun. But I have to be honest, there was that little stingy part of me because they got to sleep in our bedroom on my Tempur-Pedic mattress. <laughs> and I slept on the crummy guest mattress. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that that little part of it frustrated me. And they had to leave. Finally, they left after four days. And they had to get on the road at three in the morning to leave early. I woke up at four in the morning, checked my watch, ran upstairs, peeked to see if they were gone, and I dove into my bed. I was like, 
Oh, my Tempur-Pedic mattress. So even in my heart, you know, people we love, we were happy to have them there. But that stingy, you know, I just like my life to be orderly. And hospitality disrupts the rhythm of my orderly home and my orderly life. And it, it really is a kind of generosity. I think listening can be a kind of generosity. To sit down with somebody and really hear them out, especially in the body of Christ, someone who's hurting. Uh, have you ever been listened to well? How refreshing it is to be heard by somebody and really cared for. You know, we live in a world of talk. Everyone's talking. We've got talk radio. We've got blogs. We've got internet. We're text messaging. Everyone's talking, but is anyone listening? It's all talk, no listen. And to be listened to can be a real gift. And for some of us, I think that could be a real act of generosity. Some of us have money. We shouldn't have any time. So to sit and really listen to someone, it's like, whew. You know, can I just pay for you to go talk to a therapist so you'll have someone to listen to? Like, no, I want you to listen to me. Like, oh, I don't have time. What about, you know, and again, I'm, I'm just kind of brainstorming here. What about spiritual generosity? I was thinking about some of us who've been Christians for decades. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. How many sermons have you heard? How many Bible studies have you attended? How many... Uh, uh, different times have you heard someone preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, we have amassed this pile of gold in spiritual knowledge. Some of us have taken Bible college classes and, and seminary classes and college classes in Bible. I mean, we have so much Bible background. And yet, have we ever, ever opened our lives up to another person to encourage them in their faith? You know, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Are we, who are the more mature Christians perhaps, ever engaged in disciple-making? Do we even know what that looks like? You know, I, I wonder. You know, it's like we're hoarding, we're hoarding, but where do we ever give it back and share the things that God has given us? Um, one of the things I love about this church, it's a really cool church, it's a very mixed church. We have, it's not an old person church, it's not a young person church. It's not a single church, it's not a married church. It's, it's all mixed Another th cool thing in this church is, is there's people who've been Christians here like decades and we have other people who are just getting baptized and coming to faith. And so there's this great opportunity, I think, in this congregation because of the way God has sovereignly designed it in this particular church to connect the people who've been believers with the people who are new so they can share their lives together. And that's a kind of generosity. Um, I've been convicted by that. I've just recently started doing that. I'm ashamed to say that, that I really haven't practiced a lot of one-on-one -on -one mentoring in my own ministry. I, my staff, I work with my staff, but just I haven't done that in the church. You know, I preach, I've taught small groups, I've taught Sunday school, but this kind of this whole, and God was really convicting me about that last October. So I was like, all right, Lord, I would love to learn how to just do this one-on-one -on -one and encourage people. And so there's a guy, he and I started meeting, and it's been a really amazing experience. It, let me just tell you what we do. And I'm not doing this to brag, but just so that you can see how easy this really is. This is what we do. We meet at Panera, like every other week for lunch. We come in with our big old honking Baptist Bibles, put them on the table. We get food. We talk for a little while about just what's going on, catch up, hang out. And then we open up our Bibles uh, right there in Panera. And right now we're working through Romans. So we read a chapter of Romans together. And we just read the chapter. We read a paragraph. We talk about it. We apply it to our lives. We try to understand what God's saying in the Bible and how, how we're supposed to put this into action. And then, then we go. 
And it's been a really great experience. I'm learning as much as I'm supposedly teaching as the discipler. I'm really not. We're just, what it really is, is just two Christians meeting together and sharing Christ with one another. And, you know, anybody can do that who's a Christian. You don't have to have a degree to do that. That's just a way I think we could show that kind of generosity to others. Do we have that spirit of giving? Does it pervade our lives? You know, in the story of Silas Marner, there comes a turning point in the story. Sort of reaches that uh, sort of critical narrative twist. And what happens is two things happen to Silas Marner. First of all, his money gets stolen. All of it. Fifteen years worth. Gone. He never gets it back. The second thing that happens to Silas Marner, shortly after that, is this kind of disturbed lady in town. She has a little baby and the disturbed lady dies. She dies out in a snowstorm. Kind of a terrible tragedy. And she dies with this little baby and Silas finds them and he takes the little baby in and essentially adopts this little girl as his own. So through a series of events that he didn't choose, he is stripped of his little god, his money, and he's wrenched out of the life of a miser, forced into the life of the community, now learning to pour his life generously into this little baby. And so the story is about his transformation as he's drawn out of uh, selfishness and isolation into life of giving in the community. It's a really great... Uh, and you can read it yourself. There's some other things that happen that are really neat in the story. So why do we struggle so much with giving and generosity? What is it that's holding us back? Why is it that even those of us who claim the name of Christ can find ourselves so Silas marner e, <laughs> you know, walled up, our lives so structured, our lives so segmented with everything in order. And I think part of it is, one of the things that drives us is just fear. We're afraid. If I give, what will happen? You know, if I give, will I be okay without it? You know, some of us, we're we're just New Englanders. We just keep stuff. (laughs) Like, well, you never know when you're going to need that. Put it in the the garage, put it in the attic, put it in the basement. Oh, never know when I'm going to need that. Better not give it away. So we're just kind of afraid. Who knows what's going to happen? It's sort of a general fear of the future. Sometimes we're afraid, well, if, if I reach out to that person and listen, are they going to suck onto me like a leech? Suck the life out of me? You know? Right? And, and if, I, if I help out in this situation, are people going to find out and think I'm rich and then everyone's going to be knocking at my door asking for money? Right? These are the fears we have. We, we're afraid to give because we're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then, of course, the most basic fear is if I give, I won't have, and therefore, who's going to provide for me if I don't have whatever? And so for all those different kinds of reasons, we're afraid to, to, to give. What's going to happen? Am I going to have enough myself? And that's where we've got to go back to Proverbs 11, just to tie up that other shoestring here. Proverbs 11. Go back there. Because we didn't fully explore what I think the main point of Proverbs 11 was. We saw that there's two types of people, the generous and the stingy. But I don't think that's even the main point of Proverbs 11. The point of Proverbs 11 is, is that when we give, we receive. But when we withhold, we lose. So give and you will receive, withhold and you will lose, is the message of Proverbs. Go back to 11 verse 24. One man gives freely and what happens? He gains even more. Another man withholds unduly, but comes to poverty? How does that work? A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Like, how does that work? It defies logic. I mean, simple arithmetic, right? If you have a number and you subtract a number from that number, what you have 
is less than the number you started with. I mean, even I know that. And if you have a number and you add to the number, the result will be more than the number was originally. I mean, it's basic math. If you subtract, you have less. If you add, you have more. But in God's math, if you subtract by giving, you end up receiving more. And if you hold on to by adding, you end up having less. And I think the reason is because the formula is leaving out a critical variable in the equation. And the critical variable, of course, is God Himself. That it's not a zero-sum game. That we believe in a generous, good, open-handed, giving God. So, I don't have to be afraid about giving to you in whatever way God's calling me to because if I give to you in obedience to God, God will provide for my needs. That's what we do. So we take risks. We step out in faith and open up our lives to others. Not because we have all the resources, but we just kind of step out in faith and say, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to trust that God's going to take care of my needs. Uh, and sometimes God will give in ways that are non-financial, that are even better than financial. But whatever it is, God is going to care if we care for others. As, the, as you probably heard preachers say a million times, you cannot outgive God. It's true. You cannot give God. God gives and gives and He blesses. It's not a formula for success. Success. I'm not saying if you give $1,000, God will give you two. If you give 4000 God will give you eight. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying God will take care of your needs. So be free to be generous with your time, your talents, your treasure, and give it away to others. And you know, let me just leave you with one last thought. If the Old Testament people of Israel... Sounds like the Methodists got out early from church here, huh? If the... Uh, If the Old Testament people of Israel <laughs> sorry <laughs> turn on the filter uh, if the um, if the Old Testament people of Israel could trust God in this proverb and trust God to take care of them, how much more so can we who are the New Testament people of God on this side of the cross? Trust God to provide for us. How much more so? We've received the greatest gift that has ever been given, that ever could be given, that ever will be given. We've received the gift of Jesus Christ. Right? We've received the greatest thing God can ever give anybody. And so how much more free are we to give, knowing that God loves us to that great extent? It says in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us everything? If God's given us Christ, what am I worried about? Right? Christ is the greatest gift. Think about the magnitude of the gift of Christ. The Son of God. Given by a holy God to a rebellious, selfish, miserly, self-centered world that God would still give His only Son to people like me who even when I'm gracious and give good gifts, it's usually because I want to brag about it. You know, Even my motives are corrupt when I give. And yet God gave Jesus. I mean, has ever such a gift been given for our salvation? And the other thing about this gift that I think makes it amazing is that God's gift to us is a free gift. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, God was under no obligation to save us through Christ. 
You ever thought of that? That that blows my mind. God had no obligations toward us. The only obligation God actually has toward me is to judge my sin. That's the only thing God owes me. The only thing God owes you is to judge your sin. Think about that. There is nothing. There's nothing in us that requires God to save us. If God were to wipe out the whole world now in judgment, He would be completely justified based upon our lives. But to think that in His free mercy, despite our sin, He chose instead to freely give Jesus. That's amazing. And so is it not astounding? Is it not astounding that we who call ourselves Christians can still be stingy? (laughs) How can I justify stinginess when I have such a great gift? And is it not astounding that those who do not trust in Christ and know Christ can continue to reject Him after such a great cost and such a great price? I I would just plead with you to have pity on your own souls and to turn to Christ and be saved. You know, God has given His own Son to save sinners. And God the King is commanding you to turn to Christ. And as His ambassador, I'm pleading with you to turn to Christ. Turn to Christ and be saved. How long are we going to hold off and keep God at at arm's distance and stiff-arm Him? He's calling to us. Will we really reject such a great gift You know, make no mistake about it. God will fulfill His obligations. He will judge our sin. Either He will judge our sin on the last day when we stand before Him, or our sin will be judged through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So one way or another, God will fulfill His obligations to justice. The question is, will He fulfill them on me or through Christ? May God give us all the grace to embrace his grace and turn to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray today that